This is an audio presentation of God First Church, Cheltenham, England. A community of Jesus followers, worshipping God first, proclaiming God first, and together living God first lives. For more information, visit our website at godfirst.org.uk. Great to uh, see you. I, I'm feeling cool because I, I, I bought some new shoes yesterday and they're the same as Mark Rayfield's. So that is praise indeed for Rayfield uh, and we compared shoes and actually it was great last night. Actually, they were my dancing shoes. It was Zoe's uh, 30th party. Where's Zoe? Oh, oh, sorry, sorry, I couldn't see you. I couldn't see you. You didn't have your sparkly dress on and your big 30 badge. Yeah, so that was really good. And, um, and thank you, Hannah, for... Where's Hannah? Thank you, for Hannah, for commenting on my dancing and saying I looked rather cool. <laughs> I'd only had one drink, so I just decided just to let little, what little hair down that I've got. And so, um, particularly Michael Jackson, Billie Jean, uh, you should have been there. Uh, but yeah, it was good to do that. We're uh, working on a, a series called Big Objections. And um, invite your friends to make their comments. We've uh, we've stolen some of the uh, responses from a larger church that's connected to uh, the group we're in uh, in Eastbourne. And this is a, so that we came. These are the big objections that we came up with. They're basically uh, people unhappy about church. Kind of why are the hypocrites? Is the Bible true? What about suffering? The character of God? There's no evidence for it. Sex, sexuality, evil, world religion, science, uh, stuff like that. Hell and others. Last week we did science. And uh, a lot of you probably thought, man, my head was hurting. Uh, This week is probably a little bit more visceral, a bit more emotional, because we're going to look at how could a good and loving God allow such suffering and evil in the world? I would say that it's perhaps one of the, the most emotionally difficult questions, because I think that, that we must avoid simple pat answers. Because there's nothing worse than, than something in, somebody in the middle of tragedy and you give us a, 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 just a neat pat answer about it. You know, a knockdown answer. Well, this is the reason. It was interesting just this week in the news, I don't know if you know that the Pope Francis has been in uh, Manila uh, in the Philippines, which is a, a Catholic country. And this was a headline on Wednesdays in Wednesday's paper. Pope hugs weeping girl who begs to know why God allows children to be abandoned to drugs and prostitution. In fact, I've got some good friends of mine who, who go to Bath City Church who uh, run a project for street orphans in, in Manila. And the stories that they tell, uh, it's, it's moving, it's crushing. And, and this is what she said. I, I can't pronounce her name, <laughs> but... Um, this is what she said. She said, many children are abandoned. She said this to the Pope. Many children are abandoned by their parents. And there are also many who become victims. And many terrible things have happened to them, like drugs or prostitution. Why does God allow these things to happen to us? The children are not guilty of anything. And why are there only a few people helping us? This girl has been on the streets and been rescued by a charity. Not my friend's charity, but by a charity. And she, she grabs the Pope. If you go back to the picture... 
before. She grabs the Pope and says, why? Why is all this happening? Now, I don't agree with everything that the Pope says, but his answer is brilliantly profound. He says, she is the only one who has put a question for which there is no answer. And then he says this, when the heart is able to ask itself and cry, then we can understand. Jesus, in the Gospel, he cried. He cried for the death, his, his dead friend outside Lazarus' tomb. He cries that, that death had taken him. He cried when he saw a poor widow burying her son. And it's only when we learn to cry with those who are suffering that we can begin to understand them and to love them. The Pope didn't give some nice pat answer to suffering. And we've probably, in my life, I've probably had an easy life. But I've had those moments where you think, why? So I remember as a 17-year-old boy, uh, my dad was, had had a heart attack, but I didn't understand the, the depth of how bad it was. He'd actually had left ventricle failure. And he was at home, they used to send them home in those days. He was at home lying down in his bed downstairs. And I didn't know how, whether he'd recover. I had no medical knowledge, they didn't tell you so much then in mid-70s, late 70s. And I remember just saying to him, Dad, I'm off to play tennis and I'm going to see Deb's my girlfriend, I'll catch you later. And I never spoke to him again. He died that night and... My mum came upstairs, I was 17, and she said, how would your dad's died? And we sat by the side of his bed, and, and, and it was awful. And I, and, but it wasn't the end, it wasn't like that, that, that was just, you looked into this dark pit of suffering, and, and God wasn't there. I think, although I don't want to digress and talk too much about me, but that, that actually I did find God was there. I did find God was there, but actually I don't think God minds us asking our questions. I've got a long psalm for you, but I think it's a brilliant psalm, and it starts with this question. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me, so far from my anguished cries? My God, I cry out by day, but you do not answer. By night, and I find no peace. That is David. He's like the hero, a big hero of the Bible. We did a huge series on him, and he writes this poem. It's like a, a poem that would like be read in synagogues. It would be read out in, in Jewish synagogues for, for, for thousands of years. I don't know if they still read it in synagogues, but it's like, God, why? Yet you are enthroned as the Holy One, and you are the one Israel praises. In you our ancestors put their trust. They trusted, and you delivered them. To you they cried out and were saved. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. All who see me, they hurl insults, shaking their head. He trusts in the Lord, they say. Let the Lord rescue him. Since he de- let him deliver him, since he delights in him. I'm poured out like water, my bones out of joint. My heart is turned to wax, it's melted within me. My mouth is 
dried up like a, a dried up pot and my tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You've laid me in the dust of death. Dogs surround me, a pack of villains encircle me. They pierce my hands and my feet and all my bones are on display. People stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments amongst them and cast lots for my clothing. But you, Lord, do not be far from me. You are my strength. Come quickly to help me, for he has not despised or scorned the suffering of his afflicted one. He has not hidden his face from him, but he listened to his cry for help. Future generations will be told of the Lord. They will proclaim his righteousness, declaring to a people yet unborn, it's finished. David writes that poem. I don't know, we don't know why. We don't know what he's going through. He was, he was in the desert, chased by his enemies, persecuted. He'd been promised he would be king and it hadn't happened. He, he, he'd experienced suffering, death. He'd experienced, he, he's killed people. people. He'd seen friends killed. He'd, he'd had friends abandon him. He'd had all that kind of gamut of stuff and he's pouring it into this poem. But it's interesting, if you look at, uh, at other religions, this, 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 that poem, that Psalm 22, they wouldn't write it. Let me just touch base on three, not to kind of criticise them, but just to bring some contrast. Hinduism. That little symbol is, does anyone know? It's karma. Karma. In proportion, this is Hinduism. This is from one of their scriptures, which I will not pronounce. (laughs) Uh, It says, in proportion to the extent of one's Religious or irreligious actions in this life, one must enjoy or suffer the corresponding reactions of his karma in the next. Hinduism believes in balance. It believes that what you sow is what you reap. So if a little, if they see a beggar by the side of the road, I've never been to India, I'd love to go, but if they see a beggar by the side of the road, they don't think compassion, they think karma. She's obviously, he's obviously done something in a previous life that they're now reaping. They've sowed evil and now they're reaping evil. It's just about bringing balance. When you suffer in Hinduism, you're getting exactly what you deserve. That's what they believe. A little baby's born and dies, they must have done something evil in the other life. One of the things that I found shocking, and I'm not sure how it is now with Western influence finding its way into India, but one of the things I've heard from friends who go to India, they say, if there's a car crash by the side of the road, people just drive by. Karma. How about Buddhism? In fact, in this, uh, uh, Buddhism grew out of Hinduism. There was a a very wealthy uh, Indian prince who who observed that life was about suffering. He's in his palace, all happy, wealthy, but yet he went out for seven years into, into the Indian kind of mass of humanity in India, and he observed that life is full of suffering. The Buddha discovered that the direct causes of suffering are desire or craving and ignorance. He called that the, seven, the second noble truth. By overcoming... Craving and ignorance, they attain happiness and entitlement and rise above this world. So for the Buddhist, the problem with suffering when my dad died was I had the desire to be loved by a dad. And I have to empty myself of that desire. 
If I've got a desire for comfort, which is absolutely massive in our culture, is a desire for comfort, comfort, the Buddhist will say, empty yourself of that desire. And then when comfort's taken away, you will not suffer. So there's something compelling about that drive to master the desires that we kind of understand, that we understand desires in many ways can be destructive. But, but, But the whole point of enlightenment is that you would be You'd reach nirvana, you'd be, you'd be snuffed out from awareness of this world. That the physical world would be nothing to you, and you'd live on the higher consciousness. No desire for the love of a father, and you will not feel the loss of a father. How about Islam? This is what Islam says, the uh, script at the bottom is this from Sirah 9.51 in the Quran. Say nothing will affect us save what Allah has ordained for us. He is our patron. And on Allah, let the believers rely. Everything in Allah is about the will of Allah, the finger of Allah. That's Allah moves it. Allah is the great unmoved one, the one who sits above the earth, who doesn't get involved, who doesn't, doesn't dirty his hands with the earth. And, but yet he ordains everything. A plane falls out of the sky, it's the will of Allah. Some baby dies, it's the will of Allah. Somebody's killed, it's the will of Allah. All life is subject to his will. To be a Muslim is to... Does anyone know what Islam means? It means submission. To be a Muslim is one who submits to the will of Allah. It's all God's will, and I'll take whatever he gives me. What about the atheist? Richard Dawkins, who will get quoted a bit, I guess, in this series, one way or another. It was a zoologist who wrote The God Delusion. He wrote this in a book called Out of Eden. This is one where they believe there is no God. In a universe of blind physical forces and genetic replication, some people are going to get hurt and other people are going to get lucky. You won't find any rhyme or reason to it, nor any justice. The universe we observe is precisely the properties we should expect. If at the bottom there's no design, no purpose, no evil, no good, Nothing but blind, pitiless indifference. DNA neither knows nor cares. DNA just is, and we dance to its music. If you suffered, that's how it is. If you don't believe in God, it's not like, oh, there's a, well, we believe there is no God, that's a great answer. Well, there is no God, so, so therefore that we can explain suffering. Now, if you don't believe in God, you've got no reason to say that's a bad thing. You've got nothing to say that the, the murder of the Jews at Auschwitz is a bad thing. Where does that come from? Because it's that, that, that the atheists believe there is no right or wrong. There is no purpose. How do you say something's good or bad? On what basis? That's what Richard Dawkins is saying. That's the kind of argument, is it? The atheist argument. And all my, in all loving God... Would, would stop suffering. Suffering exists, so an almighty loving God can't exist. That's the basic argument, isn't it? Do you follow that? That's what people say to you. I can't believe in God because there's so much suffering in the world. But actually, the proper reason is, I, an almighty and all-loving, knowing, all-knowing God, would not permit suffering and evil without a good reason. I don't know a good reason. 
Therefore, there is no such reason. And suffering and evil exist, so therefore God doesn't exist. But the interesting thing is, when you say that actually you don't, an almighty, all-loving God would stop suffering, you don't know why. You don't know the answer why. Why do things happen? You don't know the answer why. And the assumption is that if you're an atheist, that actually you could just, you could know everything. The assumption is if you can't think of a good reason why that, that person uh, that suffered that way or that thing happens, then there is no good reason and therefore there is no God. But it's foolish to think we can understand the complexities. It's foolish to think that we can can know the mind of God. Most parts of the world would say it's a mystery. But because in in, in our arrogance we think we should know everything, because you can't see a reason why something bad happens, there must be no reason, so there must be no God. Okay, so what about a Christian, sort of Jewish sort of response? I think Christian would be better, but the, the, the poem is Jewish. Uh, the answer is, what about suffering and evil in the world? The answer is, we don't know why. That's got to be your answer. Stillborn baby, we don't know why. Baby born with disability, we don't know why. Tragic car crash, we don't know why. Cancer, we don't know why. But what the God of the Bible asks us to do is to ask these questions. He allows us, it's in there. Ask us to say, why, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's okay. God wants us in Psalm 22 and other Psalms in the Bible, he wants us to do what's called lament. He wants us to say, why? Fall on our face and say, God, this is not how it's supposed to be. Why? We're not supposed to be the stoic Muslims who just say, it's the will of Allah and just get on with it. You're allowed to fall on your face and say, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me? So far from the cries of my anguish. I cry out all day now and you do not answer. It's okay to say that. It's okay to come to church and say, I'm feeling terrible and I don't know why and this has happened and I feel broken and my my daughter's damaged by a stupid thing that's happened and I feel broken and I don't know why. The question for a Hindu wouldn't mean anything because you just mean you don't understand karma. For a Buddhist, you've not reached enlightenment if you ask why. For a Muslim, it's... It's almost blasphemy because you're not submitted to the will of Allah. For the, for, 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 to the atheist, who are you asking? But when God is in the equation, the God of the Bible invites us to take our suffering to him and say, why? Now what I'm going to do now is just give you two kind of logical ideas why suffering might happen. and two, That's got two moral things, in other words, about good and bad, but actually they're not the ultimate answer. So the Bible provides moral and logical arguments for suffering and evil, but the bottom line is we don't know. But the first one the Bible suggests is love and human choice. Imagine I had a gun and I pointed it to her head and said, love me. Pull back the trigger because she's not quite sure. Now love me. Yeah? What's she going to do? I mean, knowing Nazis, she might say, well, (laughs) you can't force love. (laughs) But actually, human choice and love are absolutely knitted together. Right at the beginning of the story, 
There's a human choice about love. And we've talked about this, and you can dig into it if you go back into our podcast, which I will get up to date this week. I apologise. Um, but actually, we believe at the beginning of the story, the Garden of Eden, there's two trees. There's one tree, which is the tree of life. And a little Sunday school question, who would that be? That would be Jesus. Thank you, Naomi. Everyone else is thinking, I'm not quite sure. It's a theological question. I don't know. The answer is Jesus. One would be Jesus, because Paul says, I'm worried that you've gone away from your, like Eve, away from your pure devotion to Jesus. One of them is Jesus. And the other one is the right for autonomy, the right to choose a, a life away from God. These are the two choices. You are free to eat from any tree in the garden. You can feast on Jesus, but do not eat from the tree that gives you the right to make your own goodness and evil, make your own definition of good and evil. That's what the atheists have done. They say, well, there is no absolute good and evil, so we'll make it up. We'll make it up from society. We'll have a focus group and we'll decide, is that good or evil? Pedophilia, let's get around, is that good or evil? And that's what's happened. We find our morality by, by a focus group because we've got nowhere else to turn. And I've noticed morality change in my life. What was not acceptable becomes acceptable. Euthanasia, unacceptable, now acceptable. We've decided what's good or bad for ourselves because, because we don't believe there is a God and there's no law give us help. And we've declared independence from God. God holds out his hand like, like, that, 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 like that bit that I read earlier. Or that song that we sang. He holds out his hand and says, come on, let's love. Not because God's a needy God who needs someone to love because he's got nobody. He's always lived forever in love, but he's... God reaches out his hand to humanity and says, come and live and dwell in love with me. And humanity has said, no, I'm having nothing to do with you. One writer um, of three centuries ago, two centuries ago, wrote this. Love is the greatest and most excellent things that we're mastered of. Indeed, it's the only thing we can call our own. Other things can be taken from us by violence, but none can carry off by force our love. If anything else be counted ours by freely giving our love, we give ourselves. In other words, this writer is saying that to, to, to give your love is the ultimate expression of free choice. And it cannot be forced. You can't hold a gun to your head. God can't hold a gun to your head and say, love me now, Bethany. Boom. People think that's what God is about. If you don't love me, blast. No, he said, free choice. But what have we done with that free choice? What have we done? We said no to God's way of love and we said, we'll do it ourselves. Thank you. And so what happens is suffering is in the world because of human choice. Because, because actually, God, if God removed human choice, he would remove everything. So you could say, well, why doesn't he stop the pilot flying the 747 into the Twin Towers? Why didn't he make him miss? Because what happens is that he would then start working down the tree of, of evil and suddenly he would come to every action and every deed. You did. So you go off to the superstore or wherever and you think, I'm going to spend 500 quid on a widescreen TV. And you come out and by the will of God you've given 500 pounds to charity, to hunger in Africa. 
Because actually every, every moment God would have to be intervening. He would have to take away your free will. We would be just doing what he said. It would be, be a bit of Islam really. But where has human evil taken us? You can mention the places. You can mention Twin Towers. You can mention Auschwitz. You can mention, um, I don't know, Madrid bombings. You, you can mention the kind of murder of the Aborigines. You can wipe out of the Red Indian. Where has human choice taken us? It's taken us to evil. Jesus said this. This is the judgment. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but people love darkness instead of light because their deeds are evil. Where does human choice take us? Two pictures. That's... Rio. I saw a survey last week that says the, 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 the gradient of economic and social inequality is ever, ever steeper. Between the rich and the poor. Between those that have and those don't. So here on the left is a favela where people have built their own houses. There's no electricity, no sanitation. Probably, uh, there's probably uh, a, a, an open stream that runs down the hillside that they use for the water. And here is an apartment block, fenced off, pool, tennis courts, balconies. How do we live with that gradient? But we live with that gradient. It's just not so close. There's the big white villas and the tiny council houses. There's those with more and more who care less and less about those with less and less. Staggering statistic. Staggering statistics. 1% of the world's population own as much as the rest of the 99%. And we don't care. You know, we're in that top 10, guys. We don't care. We don't lose a moment's sleep about it. But there's a God who says, why? What about this one? It's a man and woman tugging over a baby, tugging over a child. The free choice of our society to just unrestrained sexual activity, we're, 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 we're wrong if we feel there's no consequences. The torn lives, the torn child, the argument... So what's the answer to all of this? The answer is that actually God is going to make it right. You know, the, one of the horriblest concept in, concepts in church is a thing called Judgment Day. It's also a bad film. But uh, Judgment Day, if, I, if you said, oh, I came to church and the preacher preached on Judgment Day, you know, we've got this idea that Judgment Day is the is the Magnum 44 the most powerful handgun in the world? And did I use six shots or only five? Punk. <laughs> we think that's what Judgment Day is about. It's this thing that's going to say, well, actually, if you don't love me, I'm going to blow you right away. It's a scare tactic to get people, I need to believe in God. Well, that might have worked in the Middle Ages, but I don't think that's what the Bible's saying. The Bible says this, says, will not the judge of all the earth do right? You say, well, where's the justice? Where is justice between, for those that have suffered? Where's the justice for the, the millions of Jews and homosexuals and gypsies that died in the Nazi concentration camps? Where's the justice? 
Who's bringing that? The answer is God is. God is. Where's the justice for the economic inequalities? Where's the justice for every harsh word? Where's the justice for the broken relationships? God has written it all down in a book and he's going to make it right. The scary thing is, all our names are in that book. Long list, short list. There's no one whose name's not in that book, no one who's not exercised selfish choice that has caused others to suffer. But one of the things that why Christians go on about Jesus is because actually we believe that actually he took the justice. He took the justice. He loved us and took the justice. He took all the foul and filthy thoughts and immature deeds and arrogance and brokenness and everything that I've done that's hurt you and hurt other people and things that, everything I've done and he took it and bore it on the cross. He took the penalty and bore it on the cross. So that means that actually he's, he, we, we don't have to face God's justice. We don't have to face punishment. God's going to make it right. So that's one answer. Whoa, let's roll to another quick. Suffering in a broken world. So if the world is suffering because there's bad people in it, like us, Suffering also happens because the world itself is bust. Not completely. When Adam and Eve decided to declare independence from God, what happened is the earth became cursed. God says, cursed is the earth because of you. And we see a broken world. It's ten years since the tsunami, isn't it? And I remember loads of people asking why. And the answer is, we don't know. Why about? Why did those 100,000 people die? Why? You could say it was economic inequalities. The fact that they were poor countries and we never bothered to pay for them for some satellite early warning system that's like in the Pacific and Atlantic protect, to protect the United States or us. You could say it was that. That's why they got no warning. But actually just the world is groaning and broken. Paul writes this in Romans 8, our present sufferings, and then he talks a little bit, but that's the context. For the creation was subject to frustration in a hope that creation itself would be liberated from its bondage to decay. Remember we talked last week about actually that, that, that atheists believe that, that order has come out of chaos, order has come out of chaos, but actually the world we see is its disorder and chaos that's breaking in. The world is, is broken. It's beautiful but broken. These are all broken world stuff. Top left. Anyone know what that is? It's a Ebola. It's nice to hear on the news, was it, that the, the nurse who'd been there helping is actually out of hospital. But that's just the... Did God, by his finger, design a... a a virus that eats you on the inside and say, I'll put it on those Africans there. No. We don't know why. The world is broken. Why do babies die when they're little? Sometimes it's poverty, but sometimes it just happens. We had a tragic story of a, a nurse in New York who's seen an awful lot of tragedy. She was an A&E nurse or emergency room nurse. Seen a load of tragedy and she had a little baby 
and she came home and the baby just died. Sudden infant death syndrome. Why? But the world's a bust world and that sort of stuff happens. But that's no consolation, is it, to her? But it is. Here's my friend uh, PJ Smythe, who uh, we're getting related to as a church much more. About four years ago, three and a half years ago, he just was diagnosed with cancer. He's a good guy. You know, was, had he done something wrong? What was the reason? But no, just cancer. It, 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 doesn't know, it doesn't pick the bad people, does it? And say, well, that's justice. It comes to whoever. Takes whoever. So the world is just a broken place. Thankfully, his hair has grown, and hopefully we might get him to come to this church one time and preach for us. But when the plates move, and the buildings collapse, we don't know why. It's just the world's broken. Now, you could say, money, less people die in an earthquake in Japan than they do in Turkey or Armenia because they've got the money to make their buildings earthquake-proof. So there's always a human dynamic. But we don't really know, do we? But actually, one of the things that, that actually can happen is in the midst of really horrible sufferings, you can find God close to you. But we haven't time to develop that. But one of the things that's really so important is that actually we've got a hope of a new creation. The world that's bust, God's going to make it new. When, when Jesus uh, emerged out of the tomb, it was, a, it was a declaration that the world that's messed up and broken, that's evil and suffering and, and pain and tears, is going to be changed. That, that new life has come, that resurrection's coming. That, that means there's a, a whole new world that's going to be made. This messed up world is going to be made new. It says at the end of Revelation 21, it says, I saw a new heaven and a new earth. He, God, will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There'll be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. For the old broken order of things, the old world has passed away. He who's seated on the throne says, I'm making everything new. But actually, you know, those two reasons that there's human evil and we choose because of free will and evil come, we choose stuff and people get hurt. Or because the world is damaged and broken. In the end, they don't do it for me. They might provide a logical reason. Yeah, I can see that. Or they might provide a moral reason. Yeah, I can see that there's an ultimate justice in the world. Or I can see that God's desired to make it new and it's all going to come right in the end. There's a, a, a little a story of a boy who'd, a six-year-old boy who'd uh, suddenly had this degenerative disease and had lost the use of his legs. And I think his family were Christians and, and they, they said to him, are you angry about what happened to you? And he said, no, God's got eternity to make it right. Sometimes kids are more profound than us. There's an eternity that's going to be make it right. But actually, the Bible invites us to approach our suffering and pain because God has known pain. And I think this is the most amazing, we'll finish here, God himself knows suffering and pain. The whole story, the, the whole story of, the, of the universe is almost like a tragedy, isn't it? You know, here's a loving God and he, he, he designs a world for people to love him and know him and they say, no. You know, it's, it's, the, it's, it's a hard type of suffering. If your person you love turns your back on you and says, no, I'm done. That's tragic. 
God has experienced that. We've said no to him, we've said no to him, and he came and pleaded with us, and we've said no to him. And he's pursued us in his love, and we've still said, and he entered the world as Jesus in flesh, and he called us to himself. And we've still resisted him, and rejected him, and and ultimately insulted him, and tortured him, and crucified him. God has known pain. But you know why as Allah's the great unmoved? Our God is not the great unmoved. I love pictures as like the Pope says where, where God cries. He's not indifferent to what happens. Is the, 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 the sense where he it says in the Gospels that I've put uh, two bits together but I think I'm grabbing the story. Jesus approached Jerusalem and he saw the city and he cried over it. He cried over it because he wanted to give it its, his, pour his love into him and they said no. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how I've longed to gather you. Gather your children together as a mother hen gathers her chicks under his wings and you were not willing. That makes God sad. He cried about it. As, as the Pope said, when his friend died, he cried about it. When he saw pain and suffering, he cried about it. But actually, Jesus did more than that. He, he enters into Psalm 22. You know that. Some of you have been around this, been a while, you know where that psalm goes. This is Mark's gospel. Let's just read these two bits and pull it together as we're done. It says, They brought Jesus and they crucified him. That means all his bones were out of joint. It means he's slowly dying, his heart's melting away inside him. He's Mouth is thirsty. So dividing up his clothing, they cast lots to see what each would get. That's a typical thing that happened probably to everybody that was crucified. It won't just happen to Jesus. All who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, he saved others, but he cannot save himself. Those who were crucified with him also hurled insults on him. At noon, darkness came over the whole land until the three in the afternoon. And at three in the afternoon, Jesus cried in a loud voice, Eli, Eli, Lamak, Sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He was there where we go. He was there when, knowing what it is to Find a father, turn away. He knew what it is to have those he'd loved spit in his face and say, you saved others, you can't save yourself. He cried out, why? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Actually, Jesus would have made a really bad Hindu. Yeah. It would have made a really bad Buddhist. This is no enlightenment, distant God or unmoved by the pain just detaches himself from humanity. I've got no desire that I should love them and save them, Paul Miller. I'll just detach myself from them. This is no Muslim blasphemy that God would come and take flesh and get his hands dirty and be spit upon by those who made him. The the, the Quran says, no, no, it never happened. It's a lie. It never happened. This is no atheist blind forces. 
This is God tasting the pain of human evil. The disintegrating decreation of a broken world. This is God in his glory, able to comfort all who suffer because he's drunk the bitter cup with us. If you've suffered, if you're suffering, you don't do it alone. The God who came comes and cries with us. This is my last thought. I'll just read it. And we're going to break bread. Whilst the gospel of Jesus does not answer every why of our suffering, this God alone wraps his nail-paced loving arms around you and weeps with you and whispers a promise that it will end. It is finished. When Jesus was in his last hours, he said, this is my body, broken for you. This is real flesh and blood torn apart so that we might know justice. This is real flesh and blood torn apart that we might escape the judgment. This is real flesh and blood torn apart like a disintegrating world. This isn't just a nice little ritual. This is a man torn apart so that we could know what it is to be wrapped in his love. This is my body broken for you. He really did die. His blood was really poured out. But when you drink it, you're drinking, as it were, the, by faith, you're drinking that life of the one who's died and rose again. He, he, he's the one, as you drink it, you, you take your suffering and drink it down and, and find that actually there's life in the cup. There's life in him. He says, this is my blood shed for you. Do this often. Why? Because the world's broken. Because stuff's not how it's supposed to be. And remember me. The one who's going to make it new. He says, I'm not going to drink it again until I drink it with you in the kingdom to come. Well, it's already started. We already see God breaking in and making things new. But we also see that the sick don't get healed. And, and families don't get put back together. But actually, he comes and puts himself alongside us and we... For more information, visit our website at godfirst.org.uk.